From WHYY in Philadelphia, this is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Sam Brigger, in for Terry Gross. Today, Mike White talks about his hit HBO series, The White Lotus. Season two follows wealthy American guests vacationing at a luxurious hotel in Sicily. The setting is idyllic, but they've all brought their troubles with them. I'm doing like basically a reboot of Laverne and Shirley meets, you know, Fantasy Island with some survivor dropped into it. Also, Michael Checky Azalina tells us what it's like being a maitre d' at the fanciest restaurants in New York. He's worked in the business for decades, telling wealthy diners, celebrities, and even the mafia whether or not they can have the table by the window. While performing his duties, he's been tipped, insulted, and threatened. And he pushes me against the wall and he goes, I don't know who you are. I don't know your name, but you just insulted me. And I'm going to take care of you. That's all coming up on Fresh Air Weekend. This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Sam Brigger, in for Terry Gross. Our first guest is Mike White, creator of the HBO comedy drama series The White Lotus. He also created the HBO series Enlightened, wrote the hit film School of Rock, and early in his career wrote several episodes of the TV series Freaks and Geeks and Dawson's Creek. In the New York Times, Alexis Solosky pointed out two themes he's examined in his work. Quote, the gulf between the people we imagine ourselves to be and the people we actually are. And quote, how living your best life usually pushes a lot of other people into living worse ones. Unquote. A seemingly out of character chapter of his career is being a reality show contestant. He competed on two seasons of The Amazing Race with his father and was a runner-up on Survivor. The first season of White Lotus was nominated for 20 Emmys and won 10, including for Best Limited or Anthology Series. Season 2 wraps up this weekend. Terry Gross spoke with Mike White earlier this week. I'll let her describe the show. The White Lotus is about the staff and the wealthy guests at five-star luxury resort hotels in gorgeous panoramic settings. The settings resemble paradise, but the guests are wrapped up in their problems. Season one was set at a White Lotus hotel in Hawaii and focused on class, money, and entitlement. Season two is set at a resort hotel in a beautiful part of Sicily. The cast includes Michael Imperioli, F. Murray Abraham, and Aubrey Plaza. Jennifer Coolidge plays the same self-absorbed, insecure, incredibly wealthy character she played in the first season. This season pivots around the sex lives of its main characters, passionate, indifferent, and transactional sex, sex from the perspective of sex addicts, sex with and without love, and the suspicion, jealousy, mischief, and mayhem that are sometimes the consequences of sex. Mike White, welcome back to Fresh Air. I'm really enjoying the series, and I'm really happy that the first season was so acclaimed. Why did you want to focus season two on some of the ways, some of the many ways, sex can make you sad, lonely, distrustful, angry, jealous, and add to your misery? Well, originally I had a different idea. I was totally going in a different direction. And then we went scouting for hotels and we went to the hotel that we ended up choosing, which was in Taramina, the San Domenico Palace, which is a renovated convent. And it's just a very spectacular hotel, and it was seemed like the perfect place to set the show. The original idea was more like heavy hitters in business and more about power. And, and then I got there and I was like, this feels like this is not the right place to, for that kind of topic. And 
it just kind of gave me the idea that maybe to kind of focus more on sexual jealousy and adultery and infidelity and a more kind of operatic kind of bedroom farce. And, you know, like the first season we did so much about privilege and about how money is is used as a wedge between in relationships both sort of intimate and you know just in in kind of even surface relationships and i just felt like maybe we should try to you know not repeat that same idea and it just felt like sex is always <laughs> such a fertile concept you know theme to explore so i it kind of the the place sort of forced my hand in a way from the intro I gave, it might give the impression that the series is very sexually explicit. There's some scenes that are, but not that many. It's mostly people talking about their sex lives and brooding about their resentments and jealousies. But, you know, like nudity and sex helped get HBO off the ground. It's one of the things it first became famous for. So how did you decide how explicit to make this season? I mean, I'm I'm kind of just personally, <laughs> certainly as a director, I'm very timid about asking people to like undress and like get into sexual situations. It's not, <laughs> it's not my wheelhouse. And so, like, this was like there was definitely times on this shoot that I was like, <laughs> what have I got myself into? Like, I'm just <laughs> like, I you know, I'm I'm, I'm my threshold for awkwardness is very low. So uh, there's a lot of... Um, the actors are much more confident and uninhibited than I am. And so that was a new terrain for me. It just felt like it was important because it really is baked into the narrative. So, you know, it's funny, though, how now that the show is airing, how... <laughs> how much you realize, you know, like a graphic sex scene or a sex scene that kind of um, is titillating for various reasons does just spike and generate interest in <laughs> in the populace, uh, for better or worse. I don't know what that says, but it definitely feels like as far as like online chatter and just general, like, I don't know, excitement around the show, it's funny how certain like sex scenes have like galvanized interest in the narrative of the show. You know, this season is also about... Um generational differences in what it means to be a man or generational differences in perceptions of harmless flirting versus sexual harassment. And um, I want to play a scene in which three generations of men, a grandfather played by F. Murray Abraham, his adult son played by Michael Imperioli, and Imperioli's son played by Adam DeMarco, are vacationing in Sicily, staying at this luxury hotel. And they take a trip to where the Sicily scenes from The Godfather 2 were shot, including the scene where Michael Corleone's new wife is killed by a car bomb that was intended for him. And so they're right near, just a few feet away really, near where that scene was shot, sitting in a restaurant talking. And the grandfather is talking about why he thinks this is just an amazingly fantastic film. So here's the scene, and F. Murray Abraham speaks first. The best American movie ever made. No, it's not. No? Why not? I think so. Well, yeah, I mean, you would. Right, what's that supposed to mean? It's because you're nostalgic for the salad days of the patriarchy. They're undeniably great movies. Men love The Godfather because they feel emasculated by modern society. It's a fantasy about a time when they could go out and solve all their problems with violence and sleep with every woman and then come home to their wife who doesn't ask them any questions and makes them possible. Hey, hey, hey. 
It's a normal male fantasy. No, movies like that socialize men into having that fantasy. <laughs> movies like that exist because men already do have that fantasy. We're hardwired. Comes with the testosterone. No, gender is a construct. It's created. He spent all that money on Stafford. He comes back brainwashed. Um, one of the things I like about this scene is that, I mean, I think the Godfather, especially Godfather 2, is just like an undeniably spectacular film. And it's not because I'm a male nostalgic <laughs> for <laughs> the days of patriarchy, but there are some people who can't see a film as a film that are just seeing the politics in the film and the representation in the film. And um, I sometimes find that frustrating, but specifically like with older movies, and I mean movies even older than the Godfather movies, a lot of older movies are from an era where sexual politics just weren't good. <laughs> I mean, you know, like women were like wives and, and, and housekeepers and, you know, occasionally there'd be a working woman in a movie and she'd often be punished for it or just like give it up for marriage in, in the end. But they're sometimes still great movies, and I'm wondering how you separate that when you watch old movies, how you separate, like, the sexual politics or any of the, you know, colonialist politics from just the, the movie making and the, you know, the way the story is told that may still be, like, quite good. Well, it's, I mean, I, I'm of two minds. I wrote the first season, and it talked about a lot of, whatever, thorny political and social issues. And a lot of people embraced it. And then, I, you know, there were certain kind of criticisms where it was, you know, where it, when you start reading everything about the value of a piece of art by how it lines up with your political philosophy or how it should, you know, deal with certain kinds of representations, whether marginalized groups or how, you know, it's like it, it just starts to feel like as a creative person, you start to feel like you're in a in a box. But like, as far as like, there are tropes that are just inherently racist or or sexist, and and obviously that's you know not something I'm looking to try to <laughs> reboot. But like, this whole season of the show is sort of a little bit like, kind of going into some a certain like constellation of tropes and try to like <laughs> play with those tropes in a way that hopefully feels fresh. For me, it's like, you know, some of the most problematic movies have things in it that spark my imagination, that have some kind of mischievous appeal that I go back to that, you know, on their face are like, you know, you would reject some of the, yeah, the politics of it or how things are represented. But to me, it's like, I don't, I'm not always going to movies to have my politics affirmed. Mike White, the creator of HBO's The White Lotus, speaking with Terry Gross. We'll hear more of their conversation after a break. I'm Sam Brigger, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. Let's get back to Terry's interview with Mike White, the creator, writer, and director of the HBO series The White Lotus. Season two, which concludes this weekend, is about American guests vacationing at a luxurious hotel in Sicily. Season one of The White Lotus was nominated for 20 Emmys and won 10, including for Best Limited or Anthology Series. It won Mike White, its creator, Emmys for both writing and directing. So I want to confess, I started watching season two of The White Lotus after the first episode. So then I went back and watched the first episode to catch up and was surprised to find <laughs> that in the opening scene, one of the characters, after talking about what a great vacation this is, what a perfect setting, what a perfect place, goes into the ocean for a swim 
and shortly after leaving the shore, sees a dead body. It turns out there's several dead bodies floating in the ocean. So after the first scene, you know, this is in part a murder mystery. And you said before, because the first season is like this too, where there's, you know that there's been a murder, but you don't know like who's behind it, that it keeps people watching. You know, once there's a dead body, you have to find out like who did it. But um, you must be laughing about that too. You know, knowing how you're intentionally using that as a way to keep people watching. You know, I've been making stuff for a long time, and when that first season became such a kind of, I don't know, water cooler show or people were talking about it, I was like, oh, actually, <laughs> had I only known if I'd put a dead body at the beginning of Enlightened, maybe people would have, seen, <laughs> would have watched Enlightened. I don't know. Like, uh, you know, you realize these kinds of hooks, like, do actually get viewers and hopefully you can, you know, still try to, you know, it's like, you know, that is not what what drives me to make this stuff. But it, I do, you know, I, I enjoy it when people see it and are engaged in it. So it felt like obviously that device did work the first season. And, and as far as the second season, I was, you know, since we're doing a new hotel and new actors, new characters, it was like, well, what is, what is White Lotus as a franchise? And maybe this device is a part of it, which is just feeling like there's going to be, you know, there's something, it's building to a kind of operatic or, you know, tragic ending for one of these characters. And clearly it definitely, you know, just from based on like online chatter and just friends and different people, it feels like it clearly is something that drives interest in the show. And hopefully, you know, you'll, you know, people will decide at the conclusion whether it's satisfying or it feels just devicey. But at this point, I, I'm, I'm excited about the finale. I do feel like it sort of feels like it's, there's a justification for it. But, uh, but yeah, it's not really my, my natural wheelhouse, but, you know, as somebody who's been kind of working in the margins, like, it is kind of nice to have viewers. <laughs> You've been a contestant on reality shows, including Survivor and The Amazing Race. And in a way, part of the White Lotus is like Survivor in the sense that, you know, people are going to get, you know, voted off the island, or in this case, like, murdered off the island because and it literally is an island th that it's set on so do you think you were influenced by survivor in kind of creating that suspense of like who's going to survive and who's going to be forced off <laughs> it's funny it's embarrassingly true it's funny because i was jeff probst who is the, the the host of survivor is a friend now and I was with him not long ago, and he was talking about how much he loved the show. And I was thinking about, I was like thinking about, I was like, there's all these devices that are literally out of Survivor, which is, yeah, who's going to die at the end of the show? And then we use these transitions and like this kind of music. It's like, because Survivor is not that dissimilar, which is a lot of times it's just people like kind of kvetching about who's, you know, <laughs> tending the fire and like, and, you know, or having like, yeah, they're hangry because they haven't, you know, haven't had anything to eat. And, but then the music is like making it feel like, yeah, this is going to end up bad for somebody. And then, the, you know, you have these transitions of like sharks in the water. And I was like, we, we do that in <laughs> White Lotus. So I was like, so there's definitely, I guess, yeah, I, I have to cop to being influenced by Survivor and or, you know, these shows where you, you have this kind of, um, yeah, you have a device that makes it feel like it's like a, yeah, a, a built in cliffhanger. You made a half-joking re reference to uh, Fantasy Island in an interview saying that your series is, in a way, 
a version of Fantasy Island. And Fantasy Island, for people who don't know the series, was, uh, you know, a comedy series. Can I call it a comedy series? Comedic drama? I don't know. From the late 70s and early 80s, where people would come and vacation on Fantasy Island, where their fantasies would be fulfilled. And it was such a formulaic show. I mean, it was kind of hilarious to watch because it was apparently a fail-proof formula, but, you know, just... uh, an unembarrassed way of, of fulfilling the formula week after week. Um, so tell us why you made that comparison. <laughs> well, the truth is, I, like, I grew up, I'm the, definitely the Fantasy Island love boat generation. Or I was, the, you know, I was probably 10 to 13 years old when they were kind of in their heyday. And I love those shows. And I also, my other favorite show was Laverne and Shirley, which was the same time, and I was like, okay, because the two prostitutes in this show, I was like, this is there's something very Laverne and Shirley here of these girls, like trying try to like, <laughs> you know, like because uh, Laverne and Shirley were always trying to break into the like, you know, the party that they weren't invited to, and you know, like they were kind of these like underdog working class girls. When you're on HBO and there's this all this sense of like, you know, it's prestige TV and blah blah blah, and like I was just like, I'm doing like basically a reboot of Laverne and Shirley meets you know Fantasy Island with some Survivor dropped into. But yeah, I think those early like entertainment things that capture your imagination definitely stick with you. But it also has elements of like classic American theater, like Edward Albee and Eugene O'Neill psychodramas. I mean, you're you're hitting all my references. Yeah, I mean, I would I when I was a kid, I was like. My second grade teacher was Sam Shepard's mother. And so I like got Buried Child as a script and then started reading like, yeah, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? And I bought the, re- I mean, I was 10 years old. I had like the record of like Uda Hagen doing Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? And I would follow along in the book of it, the, you know, the printed play of it. And so, you know, rich people ordering drinks and getting drunk and starting to have like <laughs> arguments and, and, when I was young, I felt like that was the pinnacle of like sophisticated art. I mean, I was growing, you know, growing up in this like religious community in Pasadena. Like, it was just like I just felt like that was what that that's what high art was. That's what high society was. So I, I'm still working through that, I guess. Your father, who we've talked about before on the show, was an evangelical minister and ghost wrote memoirs for such homophobic evangelical leaders as Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson. And then your father came out and became a gay activist. You were 11, I think, when he came out. You had mentioned that because you grew up in like a religious environment, you were basically taught that expressing sexuality was kind of a sin. Can you talk a little bit more about what you were taught about sexuality in that environment, both by your parents and by school, I don't know if you went to a public school or um, an evangelical school, but I know you went to a religious camp. Was it like a Christian camp? Well, I mean, from my actual parents, I I don't know if it was talked about too much. Once I realized my dad was gay, and I, I found out he was gay prior to him like coming out to the family just because he'd had a lot of therapy and kept all these notes about the therapy and I stumbled upon that and realized that this was (laughs) that there was this whole other side to him and and what was going on I was just always taught that within the greater community that my parents were a part of that you know sex was you know mostly sinful and kind of unspeakable and it was um 
yeah, it was something that everybody kind of kept under wraps. You know, I, 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 I went to a secular school, and so I got more of a sense of, you know, it rounded out my perception of sex. But, you know, the truth was movies were the way that I got my education on sex for better or worse. You know, like I, we had cable or, you know, an early form of cable in our house in Southern California. And I, you know, they had Z channel and like late at night I would turn on movies and I, yeah, I just, yeah, I started seeking out information on my own. You know, you mentioned that you found out your father was gay before the rest of the family knew because you stumbled on his papers and read that. And so what happened? Did you ask your father to explain it to you? Were you upset by what you'd read? You were 11. I don't know how much you understood what you were reading. Uh, well, my mom, I didn't find out before my mom. My, my my parents were earnestly trying to go through the, the fact that my dad had these gay leanings or desires together, you know, and, but, it, but I knew before my sister and, and certainly before they told, uh, you know, people in our, in their kind of social circle. When I was young, it felt like such a betrayal because I, and so I, I, I kind of kept it to myself for a while, and then finally it came out that I, you know, that I knew, and yeah, you know, it was it was a very tortured time because my, you know, my parents didn't have, couldn't provide any solace for me because they were still so it was still so confusing, and they were so tortured over it themselves, and so it was. It was weird. I accepted it sooner than he did. Like I, 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 like it didn't bother me so much that he was gay. like the actual fact of him being gay. It was just more how it was going to impact our nuclear family and all of that. You know, everything is embarrassing, and that's just another thing. But it, it never felt like any more particularly embarrassing than just the fact that my you know parents had sex lives at all. What was your father's reaction when he realized that you knew, and that you had read things that were meant to be private? I don't, I mean, I think it was, oh man, my, my dad was, you know, he was going through electroshock therapy. I mean, he was going through such, I mean, he was, he, you know, he so earnestly did not want to leave the family. He did not want to be gay. It was, it was very painful for him. So it was hard to, you know, it was hard to be mad at him and it was hard to, you know, it's like he, so he was, yeah, he was upset and like, you know, and he, you know, it was, it was all very sad. You know, it ended up. You know, my parents have a great relationship. You know, they soon had, a, you know, like it, everything kind of worked out in a way. But it was, yeah, there was a f- years of a lot of like painful transitional process. Season one of The White Lotus was set in Hawaii at a luxurious hotel there. You're speaking to us now from Hawaii. You have a home there. And you live part of the year there. You also went there to recover. Tell me if I got this wrong. To recover from a nervous breakdown that you had in the, I think, early aughts after things went were not going well on a series that you were writing, and you were having a lot of disagreements with the execs at the network that you were writing the series for. And in Enlightened, the main character Laura Dern, when she has a nervous breakdown at work, goes to. Hawaii to recover. You first started going to Hawaii vacationing there when you were a child with your family. Why were you going to Hawaii to vacation? And what did Hawaii look like to you from the perspective uh, of a child? 
Yeah, we. my dad, uh, he had a friend from Fuller Seminary, uh, another professor, or one of his students, I don't know, he, who lived in Honolulu. And this guy had children the same ages as my sister and I. And so that was our first trip there. But yeah, when I was young, it was, you know, it was the first place that I had been that wasn't home. And the feeling was so different and the vibe was so different and the colors and it felt like that was that was where vacation was. That's where I don't know, that's that was where the elsewhere was that wasn't Pasadena and my home. And I guess, you know, you always are trying to reenact your childhood somehow. You know, like I when I got a little money, I was like, Oh, I'll buy a little place in, in Hawaii and I can get my parents out there. It was like almost like trying to like you go back to the scene of the original happiness and you know, obviously, all of there's a lot of cliches involved with Hawaii too, which is like the Aloha culture and everything is, you know, it's like this kind of like, you know, like it's the child's view. You know, now I'm old and cynical and like you, you know, the hotels and you know, like you peel the the paradisical onion and you see how fraught the history is here with colonialism and and how you're not necessarily a welcome guest to the people here, but like when you're a kid and you're like going to those like kitschy, you know. Um, Hawaiiana luau's or whatever. It just there's something about it that just locks in my head as some kind of like this is what paradise is, and I think in the first season I was kind of playing with that, which is like you know it, it is paradise, and then it is obviously it's paradise in someone else's you know home who's not really <laughs> who got screwed over to have you there. But I am that kid, you know, so it's still trying to capture the magic of that that fantasy. I mean, one of the points of um of the White Lotus is that you can be in a setting that resembles paradise and bring all your troubles with you. Like you bring yourself, you bring your troubled self to paradise and your troubled self remains troubled. And I'm wondering, you know, having lived in LA and lived in Hawaii, is being depressed in a paradise-like setting any better than being depressed in a suburb or a city? you know, in Los Angeles. <laughs> well, the thing is, I think the the show tries to get at this a little bit too in just a macro thing that like, you know, when you're wealthy and you don't have like situational problems that have to do with money, then your problems become existential. It's just like, you you know, you have all of the tools to like figure out your life and you can't figure out your life. I think the same is like in, in the setting. So it's like, if you're in some gloomy, urban, dystopic spot, you can always say, oh, it's, you know, my surroundings that are making me depressed or this, it's like, but if you're in paradise and you feel like something's missing or you're melancholy or you're, you know, tortured, you know it's not the ambient <laughs> nature of what's going on. It's it's something in you. And so I, I feel like there's, uh, you know, as somebody who likes to write in an existential way about, like, the questions of happiness and whatever, fulfillment or frustrations or whatever, that it's it sometimes feels like it, it draws me to try to take all the sort of situational, like, excuses for unhappiness off the table. In one of your acceptance speeches for the first season of White Lotus, one of your Emmy acceptance speeches, you thanked your father and you said, you know, you were grateful that you had the chance to honor him, that he was struggling right now. Um, what was going on and how is he? Um, is it okay to ask? 
Yeah, it's okay. I actually wanted to tell you is that, yeah, my dad has uh, Lewy body dementia and he has Alzheimer's and he oh. has, he's in, yeah, he's in a really bad shape. Like he can't stand up. He can't walk. He can't roll over in bed. He's, his brain is still there. He, you can talk with him, but he gets confused a lot and he's, he's not the person that he was. It was crazy because a year ago I went on a trip with him to Sweden and we did the trip that they did in the show. And within a year, it's like, he's like, yeah, he can't, he can't do anything. So that's distressing. But I always remembered us going on, on to your show and he was so proud of that. And so I did want to bring that up just because it's, it's something that, you know, my dad always wanted, um, you know, he wanted some kind of public approval and him being gay and being uh, seen as like a good person or it was funny how being on Amazing Race together he got certain things out of that show that he wasn't even able to do in all these years of activism because people saw him as you know like a good dad and a funny guy and and so yeah so when we went on, on to your show which he's such a fan of yours that it was it was a cool cool thing for both of us does he have any sense of the success that you're having yeah, for sure. I, I I brought one of the Emmys down and we left it with him and he's, yeah, he's so proud. And, and you know, it's like I've been away for the last year because I've been shooting in Italy and, and like my dad was always, you know, he, you know, he loved, you know, it's like he, he loved me going off and achieving and being able to have, you know, the natural parental bragging rights. But now in the last year, you know, he, what he wants is just for me to be with him. Yeah, of and so it's yeah. it's. I feel like I've spent my whole adulthood trying to um, impress my dad by you know going out and making things, and, and obviously it wasn't just for him, but for me too. And then like now it's like I think he just wants me to be near him. Mike White, it's been great to talk with you again. I've really been enjoying this season, and um, can't wait to see how it ends. So thank you so much for being on our show. Uh, thanks for having me, Terry. Mike White is the creator, writer, and director of the HBO series The White Lotus. He spoke with Terry Gross. Coming up, we'll hear what it's like being a maitre d' at the fanciest restaurants in New York City. Michael Checky Azalina spent decades in the restaurant business and writes about his experience in his new memoir, Your Table is Ready. I'm Sam Brigger, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Sam Brigger. Dave Davies has the next interview, and I'll let him introduce it. So what's the most interesting job you've ever had? Well, in his chosen career, our guest today, Michael Checky Azalina, says he's been threatened, cursed at, punched, and called every ugly name imaginable. He's also had people press a $100 bill into his hand, sometimes more than one of them. That's because for years he controlled a very valuable commodity, a table at a high-end Manhattan restaurant. Checky Azalina has worked as maitre d' in several of New York's hottest restaurants, where he's encountered celebrities, captains of finance, plenty of nice regular folks, and one bona fide mobster who repeatedly threatened him for a perceived slight, a story that has an interesting conclusion. In a new book, Checky Azalina takes us behind the scenes of the restaurant world, where we learn not just who gets choice tables and who doesn't, but how restaurant staff in the 1980s and 90s worked, fought, and loved in an adrenaline-fueled workplace where booze and cocaine were plentiful. 
Michael Checky Azolina has worked as a server, maitre d', and manager in several exclusive restaurants. He also pursued an acting career while working in the business and earned a master's in fine arts from Harvard. And he'll soon be opening his own restaurant, Checky's. It's scheduled to open its doors in February. His new book is Your Table is Ready, Tales of a New York City Maitre d'. Well, Michael Checky Azalina, welcome to Fresh Air. Thank you so much. It's great to be here, Dave. Let me start with a naive question. You know, we all know about going to restaurants and being greeted by a host. That's a job my daughter had in high school over at a couple of places. What's the difference between being a host and the duties of a maitre d' at a high-end place? It's very different. And in fact, um, there were very few hosts when I started doing this. There was someone at the door that was the maitre d' always and had host as an assistant. So the maitre d', if you look at the historically, was basically the most learned, experienced person in the dining room. He He rose up through the ranks. He got to the point where he knew wine, he knew food, he knew service, and he ran the dining room. He was in charge, the master of the dining room. So when you were a maitre d' at a lot of pretty exclusive places, there was one called the River Cafe, which had this was on a barge in, in the East River, had this spectacular view of Manhattan. And people would come in and ask for a window table, you know, normal folks who were there on a special occasion. And they would see all the window tables are empty. And you would be steering them to the middle of the room. And they would say, hey, hey, uh, can't you help me here? Don't we? We'd love to do this. What would you do? You know, it was one of the hardest things in the world to do. There were nine window tables, and generally every evening each table was spoken for. Now, were they spoken for when we opened at 5.30? No. Would people start coming at 6.30 at 7? Absolutely. So you have a guest that's waited a month for a reservation. It's the wife's anniversary or birthday or the husband's anniversary or birthday, and they see these incredible tables staring at probably the most incredible view of any restaurant in the world, and they're not allowed to sit there. Well, people get really, really angry. And what do you do? First, you tell them, I'm so sorry, but those tables were already reserved. What do you mean they're reserved? There's no one in the restaurant. Well, they've been spoken for by a number of people. Well, who? Well, you can't tell who the tables are for. You're not allowed to do that. It's it's bad policy. So you can't say who they're for. You can't say, especially the River Cafe, the owner never wanted us to say it was held by the owner. So you just have to really deal with irate people quite a bit. Um, and so, the, you know, you try to get them a, a, a nicer table. To, I'm so sorry, I can't do this, which leads to a lot of anger. Hence me being uh, punched, uh, cursed at, yelled at, screamed at. Most people are very nice about it. And when you can, you'll give them that window table. Now, someone walks in and they want a window table, hands me a $100 bill. What do I do here? Can I give a table up? Sometimes, yes, you can do that because you know that they're there at 5.30 or 6 o'clock and you need a table at 8 o'clock for, oh, let's say Barbara Streisand. Um, You'll say, look, I can do this for you. I'll need a table back at a certain time. Or you just go for it and say, hopefully somebody's going to be late. So, yeah, so tipping absolutely always helps. Um, Being nice always helps. I've given a window table and gotten myself into trouble because this lovely couple was there for their 30th or 40th anniversary, and there's no way I wasn't going to give them the best table in the restaurant. That's where you take the risks, and it, it, it comes back and haunts you sometimes. So you've got some discretion here. Um, what what should we know about whether to tip the maitre d' or not? Should you always do it? Should you should you do it when you're looking for a special favor? How much should you tip? If you are not known 
and you're walking into the restaurant for the first time, and you really want to eat there, and you're told very nicely and very politely by the maitre d' that I'm so sorry, there's nothing available, I would absolutely tip that person. I do it. If I go out and I need a table, um, I will do it all the time, and I'll tip on the way in. That pretty much guarantees you either the answer that, yes, you're going to get the table, or I'm sorry, I cannot do this at all. I've been handed at Lake Cuckoo, someone handed me five brand new $100 bills for a table for the next night, and I turned them down. I didn't have it, and nor was I going to be bought for a table. And, that and, I won't and, do. and in that circumstance, you, you hand them the money back? I handed it right back to them, yeah. My host next to me, their jaws dropped. They couldn't believe I did that. But, you know, I don't want to be bought, for one. I don't want to be indebted for not great reasons. Um, it just never sat well with me. But have I taken these tips? Of course I have. People are showing gratitude, and I'm in the hospitality business. And that's what you do, the basis of the business. How do you hand someone the bill? Do you is it the handshake with the bill in the palm? I mean, <laughs> yes, it's usually it's folded. Yeah, it's folded and it goes in your hand. Though there are those people that walk in the door with swag and they put the hundred dollar bill right down on the stand. That's for you, sir. If you can help me, I'd truly appreciate it. So, but the 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 best way to do it is to just to put it into someone's hand and shake them. See if you can help me, I'd appreciate it. You said you can actually tell the how much the currency is by the feel of it. Seriously? Yeah, you know. <laughs> you talk to other maitre d's about this, and they'll all say the same thing. You know, um, I mean, no one gets a five dollar bill anymore, but you can tell the difference between a twenty, a fifty, and a hundred. It's just the wear, and the hundreds are always brand new. They're crisp. You know, it's a hundred. You also know who's handing it to you. You know that this person is not going to give you a twenty bill. Though I have had a customer whose name I will not say, who's incredibly well known for maybe 40 years. And the guys give me 20 bucks for 40 years. <laughs> so um, inflation has not caught up with his tipping. But he's a wonderful man. And that's what he's done. You've got to be a diplomat here because, you know, people make uh, absurd demands at times. Uh, I mean, you know, about the food, about the seating, about the noise, about the temperature, whatever. Um, you, you describe one person that you nicknamed the Shah, I guess, because he's so imperious. How do you summon, you know, the gracious kind of voice that you need to deal with that? It can sometimes be the most difficult thing in the world when this person that you're dealing with is truly obnoxious and hateful. Uh, we're in the hospitality business. You know, we're there to make everyone feel welcome. And you do your best. You try. This particular person was egregiously awful. And I probably, and I, I, I don't know why I let this person stay in the restaurant and took his reservations beyond that. I have no idea why I did it, but I did it. And you just summon up this inner, this inner hospitable gene that we all have. Those are these lifers in the business who we are, and you try and make the best of it. Though I have thrown people out, I just will not take their uh, their crap, for lack of a better word. This uh, book is full of fascinating, really fun tales of restaurant life, and you did a lot of this in the '80s when, as you said, you know, Studio Fifty Four had closed at some point, and. People started going to high-end restaurants to have a lot of their fun. And it, it was amazing to me um, how much drinking was done you know, by the staff during their shifts, bartenders, servers, others. I mean, did owners know and tolerate this? <laughs> Good question. Um, you know, I, I think it's, a, it, it, it's an old standard in the business that you know your bartender is going to steal and drink. And so it depends how much you want to lose <laughs> and what you're willing to put up with. Now, do they all do that? No. Not at all. But 
people do drink. The 80s was like the Wild West in New York City. People were partying. You know, you had Studio 54 that glamorized cocaine and, and alcohol and, and, and sex, and it was, it was the lead into the, the restaurant world. And if you knew the bartender, you got a drink. Even if you didn't know the bartender, you got a drink. People drank in places that I worked and other restaurants that I know of, many through the whole shift. We had a, uh, we had a bartender that was an ex-New York City policeman, and we used to call him Dr. Dewars because he'd polish off a bottle of Dewars during a shift. It was standard practice back then. The other thing besides booze and cocaine we find is sex, a lot of it, among staff, among guests, between guests and staff. A lot of this on the premises. Uh, was this everywhere? Did owners know about this stuff? It's it's really tough to say. Look, as as we've gotten into the, the 2000s and, and all the incidents that have been documented and caught where owners were actually abusing staff. So obviously they did know because they were doing it. You mean owners were sexually um, p- preying upon staff? Is yes, that what you mean? preying upon staff, yeah. yeah. I mean, they're documented cases, yeah, you not, know. Not, uh, yeah, the Me Too movement has highlighted many of these, and a, a couple of owners had to divest themselves with their restaurants because of it. But back then, it, it was, it look, like I said, this is after Studio 54, and it was a party. You had customers coming in handing you $100 bills with a gram of cocaine in them. They expected you to party with them, and they did. Did the owners know? Or I, I can't imagine that they didn't know. But at the water club, the general manager was getting as wasted as everybody else and, and eventually got caught for embezzlement. So it, 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 from the top down, it was happening. Not necessarily just the owners, but the managers were doing it. Absolutely doing it. So it would happen. And you have alcohol, you have drugs. Well, the next logical thing is sex to happen. And it happened quite frequently in very different establishments. You know, I mean, there, there are some wild stories here, some involving you that I couldn't come within a mile of describing on this show. Um, but they make for interesting copy. And, you know, I know that as you kind of got a little older, you eventually married and had a daughter. Uh, has your wife read this stuff? She, Is this going to be yes, news I have two daughters. <laughs> and yes, she has read this stuff. Okay. I have I have the most wonderful wife in the world. And she's, you know, she's read the book in bits and pieces. And I see her sitting on the couch just laughing. <laughs> she loved it. And no, she's not upset by these stories. And look, did I have to put all these stories in and I thought about this, and I thought long and hard about it, and I had to, because I wanted to document this exactly the way it was. I really wanted people to know what it was and what people went through and the detriment that it caused, not just, you know, the party that it was, because the party ended. It didn't last. When you say the detriment, what do you mean? Well, it, 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 people just didn't last. I mean, the, the, oh. from the alcohol and from the drugs and AIDS. AIDS hit, and the sex killed people. And I was with a bunch of my co-workers that died because of this. Um, and it was a horrific time. So it had to stop at some point. You know, it, these things don't go... They stop till then people forget about it and start up again, which I think happened in the 2000s. One of the other things you describe is the two-minute drill that a restaurant would engage in when the food inspector comes. I mean, you're not particularly fond of food inspectors. You think that they are more interested in piling up fines than actually protecting the public from serious harm. But what, but when a food inspector was spotted, what would happen in a restaurant? It's a nightmare. It's an, everything stops. That is the worst day of the year for you. 
because now in New York City, there are letter grades. So you get A, B, C, D or failing. And who doesn't want an A in their window? You have to post these in the window. So the stress of having an A is incredibly difficult, especially when the system first started. Look, I've worked in a lot of restaurants, and many of these restaurants are in very old New York City buildings where it's very difficult to comply with health standards as they are written. It's almost impossible, actually. You you know you're not going to hit every point that needs to be hit. So when the health inspector comes in, what you want to do is be as prepared as possible so that the fine you get, and you will get fines always, is as little as possible. So you're not paying, you know, spending that night's revenue on your, your health inspector fines. Um, so what I've done in many restaurants is you have a drill. Once the health inspector is spotted and they come in because they're wearing a uniform and they have to show their badge, the word goes out through the dining room. And we've used different words in different restaurants, uh, tsunami, souffle, different, different terms, and to alert the rest of the staff that the inspector's there. So the maitre d' or the host, as soon as the inspector comes in, the maitre d' will stall him as much as possible and the host will go through the dining room whispering your code word. Let's say it's tsunami. So go to the bar, tsunami, the server, tsunami, go to the kitchen. And once everyone hears Here's that they know they have to go to their stations and take care of it. So busters will go to the bread station, swipe away all the breadcrumbs, throw out all the cut bread because you can't have cut bread there. There can't be a crumb in the station. You make sure that's neat. Uh, you run down to the basement. Uh, we've had managers run down, pick up a vacuum cleaner, and get on their hands and knees uh, vacuuming up mouse poop because there are always mice in restaurants in New York City. It's impossible to keep them out. The most, the cleanest restaurant, the most uh, 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 with, with exterminators and all, cannot stop mice. And there's always a little piece of poop that you miss. Look, we all try to keep it as clean as possible, but it's impossible. So once you see that one little piece speck of poop in the, in the corner... It's a, it's a, it's points that are leveled against you, and a certain amount of points mean you fail. So you're trying to pass your, your, your letter grades. So someone's doing that. Bartenders throw out all the cut fruit at the bar. It just gets thrown out because it's illegal. It'll never be up to the temperature that it needs to be. You go into the dairy refrigerator and you dump out all the milk because in the refrigerator, when you're making uh, coffee, say cappuccino, the milk is coming in and out. It's not going to be at the temperature that it's supposed to be for your health inspector. So that gets thrown out. In the kitchen anything that's ready to cook that so you take a piece of fish out of the refrigerator put it on a sizzle platter it's sitting there for the waiting for the rest of the order to be cooked so say you've got some steaks waiting to be cooked and then the fish goes on last so the fish sits there waiting to be cooked by the time it left the refrigerator and sat on the counter in that sizzle plate it's become illegal because it's too warm so if the inspector comes in and puts his thermometer in the fish you fail that and it's more points against you so every position in the restaurant has a job on basically throwing out a lot of food. You've had so many ex- encounters with celebrities in the restaurant, and then you say that most of them are perfectly wonderful yeah. and, and, and nice people. Um, one of them that struck with me was one kind of <laughs> inadvertent contact when it was early in your days, when it was maybe the first restaurant you were at, La Rouge, I think, where this very heavily made, made up woman staggers in the door Yes, collapses. <laughs> Share this with us. Yeah, it was. Um, it was my first restaurant job, La Russe on Forty Second Street in Manhattan, and it's an August day, and there's tr- a hot August day, and there's traffic outside, and it's just you know, it's just pollution and 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 heat, and it's nasty outdoors, humid. I'm in the dining room, air conditioned dining room, setting up, polishing a glass, and suddenly this woman comes rushing in th- through the door 
collapses right in the middle of the restaurant. I rush over to her. Can I help you? Can I help you? She needs water. I go get her a glass of water. Next thing I know, about 15 people come rushing through the door. And I'm like, what the hell is going on here? It turns out that this woman was actually Dustin Hoffman in the film Tootsie, dressed completely as a woman. And I had no idea. All of a sudden, the wig comes off, and they're, 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 they're taking his makeup off and, and lifting him up there. And I was absolutely, completely stunned. Yeah, there was a, it was a really hot day, and it kind of became was overcome. Did you ever have any contact with him? He came that? back a week later with his wife, had dinner, um, was the most incredible gentleman in the world. Left me a huge tip, and you know had a great time, and came to thank me basically. Well, Michael Checky Azolina, thanks so much for speaking with us. Thank you so much. This has been wonderful to be here. Michael Checky Azolina's book is "Your Table Is Ready: Tales of a New York City Maitre D." He spoke with Dave Davies. Checky Azalina plans to open his own restaurant in New York in February called Checky's. Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Roberta Shorrock, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.B. Nesper. For Terry Gross, I'm Sam Brickard.